Welcome to another episode of the Amford Church Sermon Podcast. We're thrilled that you're taking the time to listen to what we have to say about God, the world, and you. These sermons are recorded live during our weekly Sunday morning services. To find out more about us or to plan a visit to join us, check out our website, amfordchurch.com. Again, thanks for listening and enjoy. Where do you go when you need some time to think? You know, when you need a bit of clarity, when life seems to be crashing down, there's all sorts of different things going on, it's busy, busy, busy. Where do you go to get some clarity, to have a bit of time to think and put it all in order? Do you go to the shower? I wonder. That's a place where things often come to me. I enjoy spending a bit of time there thinking things through. Um, or maybe you talk to people. Maybe you go out for a coffee and you're a kind of verbal processor type person. And you need somebody there to talk to. And as you talk to them, and they maybe don't even say anything, but you realize and you understand and things all go clear. Or maybe you're somebody who goes for a long walk, as the people in our story are doing today, as we've been talking about. Um, Maybe you go for long walks in the winter up snowy mountains. I can say officially now I've used this more as a sermon illustration than I have actually in in real life, I think a lot more times. Um, But today we're going to look at The story of people going to a mountain, going for a a very long walk, um, going to a mountain, not actually up a mountain, at least not many of them. And it's a mountain that brings a lot of clarity. Mountains are very significant in Scripture, like beaches that we talked about last week. Mountains, perhaps even more so. Noah's boat. Do you remember Noah's ark came to rest on a mountain? The people who, um, who lived in Babel built, tried to build sort of their own mountain to reach up into the heavens to God. Abraham and Isaac walked up a mountain and met God there, kept him from sacrificing Isaac and gave him something instead so that Isaac could go free, so that Abraham would have a son and that the world would be blessed. Later on, Jerusalem was built on a hill, Mount Zion, God's holy hill. And even later on into the New Testament, Jesus is always going up mountains, it seems, going out early in the morning to pray, to think, perhaps to work out sermons and parables. He goes up to mountains, not just to think and pray, but to preach as well. Do you remember the Sermon on the Mount? Probably Jesus' most famous sermon of all. That was on a mountain. And then at the end, although it was really just the beginning, Jesus walked up another hill. But we'll get to that later on. See, mountains are places where we get clarity. I suppose usually, you know, unless the fog is coming down and the snow and all that kind of thing. But usually you go for a long walk. It helps you think. It helps you kind of blow off some energy. And we get a bit of clarity. We answer some questions. So maybe you've got some questions today. I think they're going to be answered in the passage. Questions like, when I'm going through hard times, does God really love me? Is he really with me? How should I live? I mean, what's God's will for my life? Have you ever asked that question? Is there any point in coming to church? I mean, what is this anyway? Maybe you don't enjoy it awfully, but what is church all about? Is there any point in coming and being part of this? Or what about when I mess up? And, you know, I want to come to church. I want to get to know and be close to God. But sometimes I mess up. I do things that are really wrong. And I feel dirty about that. Is there any way back? When I mess up, when I don't do what I know God wants me to do, is there any way back to walk with him? Is there any way of getting rid of that weight of guilt and of shame that kind of sticks to us and drags us down or keeps us awake at night? Or maybe the biggest question of all, what about death? When I go to meet my maker, and perhaps we feel the dread of that, 
Is there any answer to that? Is there any hope on this mountain? Well, I hope we'll see that there is. For all those questions, I'm not going to go through them one by one, but hopefully you'll pick up as we go and whichever question you've latched your teeth onto, maybe you can work out an answer as we go. But let's go up this mountain together, and I want to give you three things, three really important things to do when we go up the mountain. First is to trust your guide, because he's been there before. Second thing is to get your map the right way up. It's a map of Snowdon. If you want to go on a trip, you can come and borrow that later. But you need to get your map the right way up. We'll get to that. And then you need to make sure you go back down the mountain. Although actually we'll see in the story, it's not us that's going down the mountain. It's somebody else. But we'll get to him later. So first of all, you need to trust your guide because he's been here before. Let me read to you the first few verses of Exodus chapter 19. And let's, um, let's see the story. Exodus chapter 19, if you've got a church Bible in front of you, it's on page 76. Last week, we looked at the people of Israel getting to the beach, to, um, to the crossing of the Red Sea. They've been wandering around for about three months in the desert, um, doing all sorts of different things. You can go and read those last few chapters, making a real mess of things most of the time. And now they arrive at the mountain, and this is what happens. Exodus chapter 19 from verse 1. In the third month, of the Israelites, after the Israelites left Egypt, on the very day they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the house of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my, com- keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Those are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded them to speak him to speak. The people all responded together, we will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. I wonder if you know where Mount Sinai is. Hello, can we have our map up? This is, maybe you can't read many of the words on there, but this is a a map of Egypt on the left, and then the Sinai Peninsula, Sinai region in the middle, and this down here is where we reckon Mount Sinai is. And do you know where they were going? Any kids, can you point out where the promised land was, where the people of Israel were supposed to be getting to? I put a big circle around. It's Canaan up in the top there. So here's our first question. If they've been spending three months walking from Egypt, following the Lord as he's gone before them in a big pillar of cloud by day and fire by night, walking with them, leading them where they're supposed to be going, they're supposed to be going to Canaan. So why on earth are they down here in Mount Sinai? Three months' walk all the way from Egypt. How did they get down there? And why are they down there? It seems like an an awfully scenic route, isn't it? Except it wasn't very scenic. I suppose it was maybe beautiful for the first couple of days. And then it it was dry and hard, hard walking. Imagine not just going for a Sunday afternoon stroll and how tricky that can be with little ones, but going for a three-month walk in the desert with all the stuff that you could carry on your back. Not much food to eat, not much water to drink, except when God provides it, and that's one of the stories that you see. But imagine going for that walk. They're really quite far off course, aren't they? So what are they doing down here in Sinai when they're supposed to be going to Canaan? How come they're so far off track? Why do they have to walk through a wilderness before they get to the promised land? 
Well, it's a picture for us. It's a picture for us of what God sometimes does in our lives. See, one author says that this whole story, the whole author of uh, the whole story of the Exodus of the people leaving Egypt and going to the Promised Land and everything that happened in between is a picture. It's a, a grand illustration of the gospel story, of the story of God rescuing us from sin, rescuing us from death, rescuing us from um, from all the horrors and sadness of the world, and bringing us to His place of rest, to his promised land. So what is going on? Why does God make them walk through a wilderness the long way around before they get there to the promised land? Well, why does God sometimes do that with us? I wonder if you've had that experience where you've given your heart to the Lord, you've given your life and said, everything, all that I am belongs to him. Lord, I want to follow you and be yours forever. And then things have just gone downhill from there. You became a Christian and life just hasn't gotten an awful lot easier. Those people who preach on the television and tell you you should be wealthy and healthy and everything should go right because you've had faith in a victorious God. And it just doesn't seem to come true. You seem to be walking through a wilderness. You're still following the Lord Jesus, but perhaps you're wondering what on earth is going on. Well, this is what God does. Why he does that is the next question, but this is what he does. He brings us into wildernesses to meet us there. Why is that? Why does God put us through suffering and difficult things? Why does the Christian life not seem much easier than anybody else's life? In fact, sometimes it's just more difficult. Well, why does God make us walk through the wilderness? Because it teaches us. Because it shapes us and forms us and makes us ready to know him. Ready to live with him in his promised land forever. What does is, what is suffering and struggle teach us? I know there's many people in church here who could give many answers to that. But you've learned many lessons through suffering. But suffering teaches us about our finality, doesn't it? About our mortality. It teaches us complete dependence, or at least it should. It should show us that we're really small compared to all this enormous wilderness, compared to the God in heaven who has the whole world in his hands, that we're really small and we don't have much. We can wear special shoes, we can get special rucksacks, pack as much food and water as you like, but you'll still run out at some point. You'll still run out of health at some point. You'll still run out of money at some point. You'll still run out of energy at some point. You'll still run out of goodness at some point and run up on the rocks and say, Lord, I need you. I need your grace. I need your help. You see, that's why the Lord brings us through wildernesses before we get to the promised land. He teaches us that we're finite. also teaches us that we're sinful. You read through the couple of chapters before this and you'll see these people really are complete rotters. They're really not wonderful at all. There's nothing that should have made God choose them. They weren't particularly special. They were people who were selfish, people who forgot about how good he'd been to them within 15 minutes, it seems. People who didn't trust him, even when the day before he'd provided for them miraculous bread from heaven, when the week before he'd provided miraculous water, and then a few days, a few hours, a few minutes later, and they've forgotten him. You see, these wilderness wanderings, they teach people about themselves. They teach us about ourselves, that we're final, finite and we need God, that we're sinners and we need his grace. Because John Newton, the man who wrote Amazing Grace, he said this, nobody ever learned they were a sinner by being told. Because I wonder if you ever learn much from mum and dad telling you, don't do this, don't do that. It's really much easier to learn by experience, isn't it? You touch something hot, and then you don't do it again. Cut your finger with a pen knife, and then you're much more careful afterwards. Those kind of lessons are lessons we learn, don't we? When somebody warns us and tells us, 
we need Jesus. We often just don't really listen. It sounds strange. It sounds weird. It sounds like religion. We're not into that until your ship runs aground, you're wandering around in the wilderness, you're at an end, and you think, what hope do I have except that God would rescue me, that he'd rescue me from, from the sadness and suffering of life, that they'd have, there'd be hope, that he'd rescued me from the sin, the evil that's just inside my heart, and I just can't get rid of it. I can't do my best to get rid of it. Only somebody else can fix me and help me. Only God can do that. So we need to trust our guide. It's a hard life, the Christian life, isn't it? It's a narrow road, Jesus says. It can seem really strange. It can seem like God has abandoned us. But no, we need to remember to trust our guide because he's walked this way before. You see, God doesn't ask us to do something he hasn't done himself or isn't willing to do. Do you remember Jesus? All those stories we read about him in Mark's gospel over the last few months? All the wonderful stories to begin with, all the promise of uh, amazing food when Jesus provides for people, of freedom from spiritual darkness when he casts out demons, of freedom from sickness when he heals people, even from death when he raises people. And all the disciples are rejoicing and happy and loving it. And then he says, but I have to die. I have to go to a cross. And they can't believe it. They can't get their heads around it. Peter even says, no, it can't be like that. I wonder if some of them, when they were watching Jesus dying on the cross, were thinking, what good can come from this? About some of us are living in our lives at the moment with wreckage all around us and thinking, what good can come from this? What is God doing here? Brothers and sisters, we have to trust our guide and remember that he's walked this way before, that he walks his wilderness road up Calvary to the cross to die for us, but to be resurrected and bring hope. You see, our real hope is not just that God would fix our lives a little bit, that he'd give us back our health, you know, next week when the doctor comes around or miraculously, that he'd give us a bit more money in the bank. Our real hope is the resurrection, is that Jesus, who rose again on the third day, is going to come back one day, as we sang, and resurrect each one of us, that we'll have bodies again, that will never die, that he'll put to death, death forever, that evil will be no more, that he'll wipe it all away once and for all. That's our hope. But to do that, to wipe away evil, to end it all, he would have to end us unless he went to the cross. You see the disciples standing there and saying, how, what good can come of this, of God himself in the flesh dying? How, how is that a good thing? And yet, it's only through the cross that you can get to the resurrection. It's only through him taking all of that sadness and sin and darkness on himself and dying with it and taking it away that there's any hope that evil would ever be gone that sadness would ever be wiped away, that tears would ever not need to be cried again except in joy. See, it's the only hope that we have, that the one who's leading us walked through his wilderness and came out the other side to the promised land. And one day, we'll go with him. So would you take his hand? It's really my first question, especially if you're young today. Maybe you've been in lots of Sunday school lessons. Maybe you're old and you've been in lots and lots of church services. Maybe it's the first time you wandered in today. Well, welcome to you. The question really, the invitation of Christianity is, would you take his hand? Life is hard, but it's going to get better when Jesus comes back and fixes everything. So would you take his hand and follow him through this narrow gate, through this tricky road, but follow him faithfully until you reach that promised land? Come on, let's trust our guide because he's walked this way before. He's come out the other side, so let's go with him. But maybe you're still feeling, look, I'm going through hard times, feels like God has forgotten me. feels like he's not interested in me. It feels like 
I've been working really hard. I've been doing what's right. I've been keeping the Ten Commandments as best as I, as I could. I've been just trying really hard to be a Christian, and life is, is just not going well. It feels like God has no interest in me. I want to put my hand in his, but it seems like he's far away. It seems like he, he maybe thinks I haven't done well enough. Well, the second thing we need to do, not just trust our guys, is to get our map the right way up. So get your map the right way up. And by that, I don't mean the map of the Sinai Peninsula. I mean the map of salvation, that kind of internal map of how God is with us. This is the thing that will help us trust him most of all when we see how good he is. Have a look down with me back at our passage, verse 3, 4, 5, 6. Then Moses went up to God, and what did he say on the mountain? Verse 4, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my command, keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. Do you see three things there and how it's really important that we get them in the right order? The first thing, God rescued the people. You yourselves have seen what I already have done what I did to you, to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you out to freedom, to myself. God has rescued them already. And then they come to the mountain and he gives them something to do. He gives them the Ten Commandments. That's chapter 20. That's the next bit that we haven't read yet. He gives them some commandments and says, if you obey these, if you live as the people I want you to be, then you'll have blessing. So we need to get those in the right order. It's completely... It's, your life depends on it, to have these three in the right order, to get your map the right way around, and to come and see what God has done before you try and do lots of stuff for God and receive his blessings. Another way you could put this, just to make it really clear, if we flick the next slide, is this, that God has blessed you already, and then he asks you to come and obey him, to come and live like the people he's called you to be, so that you can have even more blessing. Do you see how it works? And do you see how we always get it the other way around? How if you're sitting here thinking, my life is really hard, and it must be because I've done something wrong. Do you see how you've got it the other way around? Do you see how you're saying, my life isn't very full of blessing right now. It doesn't feel like it. That must have mean that I did something wrong. See how we're working the wrong way up? That must mean I did something wrong. So I should mend my ways. I should do this. I should have more faith. I should be a better person. I should fix myself. And then God will bless me. And then God will rescue me. And then God will save me. And he'll be my God and I'll be his person. If I do lots of good things, if I sort my life out, if I get myself on the straight and narrow, if I just come to church enough, if I just have enough quiet times, if I just do whatever, do you see how that's completely the wrong way up? And yet that's how, that's how we think all the time, isn't it? Often that's how we are with children in school, in our homes. We say, if you do that, then you'll get this. But kids, you need to remember when your mums and dads say that, that you already are their children. You already are the little ones that they love, that they would give anything for, and that they're calling you, they're asking you to obey, they're asking you to live like part of, your, of their family because they love you, because they want it to go well with you, for you to have a, a, a long life, to prosper, to, to walk closely with Jesus and to know what real prosperity is all about. You see, we belong to God first, and then he asks us to do stuff so that we would push into that and enjoy that and obey into all the blessings he has already given us. Do you see the order of that? You have to get it right. What God has done, and then what he asks you to do. 
and then even more blessing for us. He blessed us already. He's carried them in eagle's wings. He's not saying, come on, keep the Ten Commandments, and then you'll get out of Egypt. Then I'll rescue you from slavery. It's pretty obvious, isn't it? Do you see how even the whole of the shape of the story is the gospel, is the good news? That they're already out of Egypt before God asks them to do anything, before he gives them the law and the Ten Commandments. He picks them up on eagle's wings and flies them to safety. Not literally. But he rescued them. What does that picture mean? It means they were completely helpless. They had nothing to do with it. If you're a Lord of the Rings fan, like Frodo, after he's... Ah, that's a spoiler. You should probably know all know the end. He throws the ring in the volcano, and then he just collapses, and the eagles come and rescue him and bring him to safety. Or Gandalf, he's stuck on the top of the tower, and the eagle comes and picks him up and brings him to safety. Or maybe you're more of a Harry Potter fan. Do you remember Dumbledore's Phoenix? He does something kind of similar, doesn't he? Comes and rescues and saves the day when there's no more hope. Well, that's what God has done for the people of Israel. All they did was cry out and say, help us. And he came and did everything for them, rescued them completely on eagle's wings, made them his treasure, and then says, come on, live with me, live for me, obey my covenant, and you'll enjoy loads of blessing. What's a covenant? Maybe that's a strange word, you haven't heard that before, but it's basically a promise. It's a promise that works two ways. Like any married couples here, you made a covenant on your wedding day. You said, I will give myself to you and take all that you are in sickness and in health, whatever it comes, good and bad, happy and sad, whatever it is, I give myself to you and I take you for myself. That's a covenant. I will do this if you do that. You see, it's a two-way promise. And that's what God is making with his people here. He says, I've rescued you. Now come and be mine. These blessings will be yours. What blessings are they? Let's go through them really quick. If you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, you'll be my treasured possession. Three things. The whole earth is mine. You'll be for me a kingdom of priests. There's number two. And a holy nation. So if they come and follow him, if they come and agree to be his people, what three things happen? He treasures them. Kings back in the day used to own everything. Not just a few palaces, and kind of go on trips and that kind of thing like our queens and kings do. But kings back in these times owned everything that their eyes could see. And so everything was there. So, so what was the special thing? I mean, they owned it all. So the special thing they called this treasured possession. That's what the word is. The thing that a king would hold, maybe keep on his bedside table. Maybe go into his treasure chamber and just hold that and think, that was the thing that my great-granddad passed down to me. This is my treasure. Whatever it would be, the thing that really means something to me, much more than it's worth in the bank. This is my treasured possession. And for God, what's his treasured possession? It's you, if you're trusting him. You're the thing that he keeps on his bedside table, the thing that he gathers into his arms, the thing that he sings over, the thing that he loves. You're his treasured possession. You're also his holy nation. What is a holy nation? Well, a special people. That's the word holy. Sammy brought that up before. That we're set apart, that we're special, that there's something different about God's people, about us. Just take one little thing that would make us different would be humility, wouldn't it? What, what's humility all about? Well, kind of self-forgetfulness, isn't it? One author's put it like this, that humility isn't thinking less of yourself, or thinking I'm a worm and I'm nothing and I'm useless and I've got no skills. It's not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. So, so I guess humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Eyes off of me and onto the guide, onto the Lord, who's my treasured possession. 
Do you see what that, do, do you know somebody who's humble like that? Who just doesn't think about themselves? Who thinks about others, who puts other people first? Who loves other people and lives to serve and give to them? Who doesn't think about their own reputation all the time and try and climb up on top of others and put people down uh, in gossiping about them or you know, thinking lower them or isn't kind of neurotic and struggling because other people are higher and, and better and, and more successful. They just don't think about themselves much. And so they're loving and generous and kind. That, that If we had that attitude, that would change us, wouldn't it? How do you get that? Well, you look to this God who's done everything for you. You look to the God who's come and lifted you up on eagle's wings out of that pit, out of that struggle, out of that sin, and rescued you. A God who says, you really are sinful and don't deserve anything. That humbles us, doesn't it? Humbles us to the dust. But then a God who says, but I'll give myself to you completely. And you'll be my treasured possession. Even though you're nothing, I'll make you everything. That's something that, hum- that, that exalts us to the skies, isn't it? Do you see how the gospel does this? How if we're people that take this message of Jesus to our hearts, it would make us low and think, oh, I'm really not much. There's, there's no point trying to build up my ego and make my own reputation great because I, I know I'm not much. And yet I am everything because he loves me, because he chose me. What would that humility do in our congregation, in our family here? Wouldn't that make us people who speak kindly, who love generously, who give our time and give and give and give as God has given to us? That would change us, wouldn't it? That would make us a holy people, not just as in doing good and moral things, but special, distinct, just something different about them kind of people. See, God has called us to be a holy people nation and a royal priesthood we don't have time to get into all the stuff the priests did but what's a priest for a priest is somebody who connects people particularly who connects god and humanity we'll get to that a little bit later on but these are the blessings god says to the people of israel then i've rescued you so come and be who you are you're my special people you're my treasure possession Now, would you come and keep my covenant, live like this, and be like this, be my treasure, be my special people, be be priests who would show the world what I'm like? Except that we know, if you just look at where we are in the Bible, there's a whole lot more to this story. In fact, there's a whole lot more to this chapter. In fact, there's a whole lot more to that little word that we've skipped over, if. If you obey me fully, and keep my covenants, you'll be this. That's a huge if. And it's something that the people of Israel failed miserably to do. I mean, they'd already failed before they got to this point. And it's really not long before they're doing all sorts of unmentionable things that really are the same things you and I do each day. If this is what our hope rests on, you know, if God rescues us and then says, but continued blessing, living with me rests on you and you doing stuff, well, it doesn't quite work. So do you see how this is a, it is in, in like a big way. It's a picture of the gospel. But at the same time, it's not quite the whole of the story. It's not the end of the story. You see that in the rest of the chapter. So from verse 9, let's read on. The Lord said to Moses, I'm going to come, on, to come to you in a dense cloud so the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. Then Moses told the Lord what the people had said. The Lord said to Moses, go to the people. Consecrate them today and tomorrow. Make them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day. Because on that day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, be careful that you don't go up on the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain will surely be put to death. 
he shall surely be stoned or shot with arrows. Not a hand is to be laid on him, whether man or animal. He shall not be permitted to live. Only when the ram's horn sounds a long blast may they go up to the mountain. After Moses had gone down to the mountain, has gone down the mountain to the people, he consecrated them and washed their clothes. And then he said to the people, prepare yourselves for that third day. Abstain from sexual relations. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Couldn't go up. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace. The whole mountain trembled violently, and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Then Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. Do you see what's happening here? The people can't go up the mountain. They're made for God's presence. They're made to be his treasure possession. But there's something about them that means they never can get close. That they have to put a, a special cordon around the mountain and say, don't, don't even close it. Not, don't even touch it. Not even close. Don't, not even your animals. Even after you've washed yourself, there's something that keeps us from God. Something that keeps us from doing this if, from keeping this covenant fully, from knowing all the blessings that God would want to give to us. And what's keeping us is us. Something about us and something about God is us and our sin. We've talked about that. And God and his holiness, his pure goodness, which is scary to us. I don't know if you've had the experience of moving up a set in school or maybe put in the wrong set or having a job that you had maybe blagged a little bit in the interview and you turn up and you're not really sure what, what you're there to do. Or turning up to a sports team when you haven't really done your pre-season and, and you're just in the presence of all these huge athletes, of all these clever brains, of all these really skilled workers and colleagues, and you just feel left out. You just feel so small. You just feel like you're in completely the wrong place. And it's kind of terrifying, isn't it? Well, imagine what it would be like to be before a holy God who's completely good, knowing what, what I'm like. A God who's enormous. It would be like this, like fire, like smoke, like thunder. It would be something completely terrifying, and we want to run away from it and die. I think that's what it would be like for us to meet God. And so you see there's a huge problem, isn't there? God loves these people, and he treasures them, wants them to be his treasured possession forever, but they just can't live up to it. Wants us to be his treasured possession forever, but we just can't live up to it. So we need something. We need somebody to come and help us. We're, if you like, staring up that mountain, looking at the lightning, waiting for Moses to come back down. So do you see? The Lord descended to the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. So he went up, and the Lord said to him, go down and warn the people so they don't force their way up through to see the Lord, and many of them perish. Even the priests who approach the Lord must consecrate themselves, or the Lord will break out against them. Moses said, we've done that already. The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai because you yourself warned us. We put limits around and, and the mountain and set it apart as holy. And the Lord replied, no, go down and bring Aaron with you. Do you see what Moses is doing? Can you feel the people waiting, looking up into the gloom, waiting for a flash of lightning to come and to see somebody walking down to them? You see, they're close, but they're not with God. They're not on his bedside table. They're not in his arms. They're close, but just not yet. They need somebody to come down to them and make it happen. That's what Moses does. He comes down. And he rescues them. He saves their lives. You see that? He keeps them coming up on the mountain. Maybe they were scared. Maybe they were panicking. Maybe they were impatient. I don't know. But for some reason, the Lord knows 
that they want to come up to the mountain, but it's not time yet. So Moses has to go down and save them from their sin, save them from dying, rescue them from God's holiness. Somebody has to stand in the way. So we're watching down at the bottom of the mountain, behind the cordon, waiting for a mediator, for somebody who would come and save us. You see how Moses is just a little picture of us and how we wait for somebody else. In fact, he's already come. We've already seen him from coming from up there to down here. Coming from up there in light and smoke and holy fire to down here. And he's not just somebody who's come with a message from God to say, you know, can I keep back? Get behind the cordon. Don't come too close. No, this messenger has come from up there to down here and said to us, do you remember? Come to me. Not stay back behind the corner. Come to me. All who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. All of you who are struggling and suffering. All of you who are afraid, and I'll give you rest. Come to me. Do you see how Moses is a picture of Jesus? So are you somebody who's looking for him? Are you waiting, looking towards the Jesus who's already come into history to be with us? And has spent, sent his Holy Spirit to live within us. To invite us to be part of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit forever. How has he done that? Well, we're looking to this Jesus who hasn't just come down the mountain to us, but has gone up that other hill outside Jerusalem and died in darkness. Died under the fire of God's holy judgment, of his goodness pouring out on him. Why did he die? He was perfect. He never did anything wrong like you or I. But he took everything we've ever done. He became sin, the Bible said. And he went into God's presence and died there under God's condemnation, under his judgment for all the things you or I have ever done. Do you remember what happened to the temple curtain back in our stories in Mark? It ripped. That curtain that was keeping people in the temple away from God's presence, it tore from top to bottom. Uh, If you like, use this picture from the bottom of the mountain. Jesus walked down from God's presence and took away the cordon, ripped it away and said, come to me. You don't even need to run up the mountain. I've already come to you. Like the father who runs out to his prodigal son, he comes to us with arms open. And what do we need to do? Turn around to him and just say sorry. Just turn to him and trust him. He's the God who comes to us. Are you waiting for him? He's the God who's walked up that hill for us to make a way. And he's a God who has brought us together as his people, who's died for us to bring us to God and to bring us together, to make us God's treasured possession, to make us a holy people, where it doesn't depend on us now to if anything. It depends completely on Jesus. He's given everything, including all of his goodness, to you as a gift. So you can stand before God and be in his arms. And he's made us that kingdom of priests, people who would live for him, people who would be completely different, people who would just be something different about us and who would invite other people to come and meet our God and who would bring him to come and meet them. Do you see how this is a picture, not just of a a piece of history from back in the day, but it's a picture of you and I. So would you today, would you follow that master? Would you follow the leader wherever he goes? Even though it's hard, he's been there before and he's taking you to safety. Would you, would you see him as he comes back down the mountain? 
and all the way until you get to see him face to face, would you keep that map the right way up? Don't try and get into his good books. Don't try and climb that mountain yourself. It'll never work out. Remember, God has rescued you in Jesus. He picked you up and carried you on eagle's wings. Remember, in Jesus, he saved you. Remember, in Jesus, he's made you his treasure possession. So would you come and be his holy people? Would you come and be his priests? Maybe you're here and you're not a Christian today and you're not really sure what it means and how to kind of get started with this. Well, what does it mean? It means doing what the people did, saying what the people said in verse 8. The people responded to the together. We will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. But what has Jesus said to us today? He said, come, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. So if you're not a Christian and you're carrying those burdens, you're feeling that shame, you, maybe you want to go up that mountain, but you just feel you can't. Well, what does it mean? It, it means to come to him in prayer. To say, Lord Jesus, I want to be with you. I want to be your treasured possession. I want to be part of your people. I want to represent you to the world. So would you do that for me today? Would you take away all my failure? And would you give to me all your goodness? You can do that by praying. Just say, Lord, I'm sorry. Thank you for Jesus. Would you have me as your own? And that's it. You begin that through that narrow gate, to that narrow way to walk with him forever. I'm going to pray. Now, if you'd like to, if you're not a Christian, you can echo that prayer with me. If you are a Christian and you've been walking with him for many, many years, why don't you renew this prayer? Why don't you pray this again? And let's pray it together that we would remember we're not those people back there. That's the old covenant. No, we belong to Jesus. And so let's live like those who are his treasured possession. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much that we don't come any longer to a mountain that can't, that can't be touched that's burning with fire, that we don't come to darkness and gloom and storm, to trumpet blasts or a voice speaking words that we just can't listen to. Lord, we thank you now that we come to Mount Zion, we come to you and to your heavenly city, to your presence, to the city of the living God. Thank you that we come because of Jesus' blood sprinkled upon us, shed for us. Lord Jesus, I'm sorry for what I've done, even this morning for what I've done with my life and how I haven't walked with you. Lord, we failed you. We know those Ten Commandments in our hearts, and yet we just don't keep even to our own standards. Lord, we're sorry for that. But we thank you for Jesus, who kept them all for us, and then who died in our place, so that that cordon can be ripped away, so we can walk onto the mountain and meet you running down it with arms open to be in your presence. Lord, would you help us to remember the kind of God that you are, that you are a holy God, that we shouldn't mess with you, and yet, Lord, that you are a God who makes us your treasure. Lord, would you be our treasure today? Would you forgive us for our sins? Would you take us for yourself? And would you help us to live as those holy people, just different? Would you help us to live as those priests who represent you to the world, that the world would know there is a God in heaven who's come close, who's forgiven, and who's bringing hope one day. Amen. hope that you found today's message useful and challenging and we want to take a moment to offer you some next steps that you can take right now why not get in touch with us via email at contact at amfordchurch.com if you have any follow-up questions or things that you'd like to discuss if you want to know more about what's going on at Amford Church make sure to like us on Facebook and lastly check out our YouTube channel 
for video teaching in addition to our sermon podcasts. Thanks for listening.